time. Yeah. All right. So welcome, everybody. Uh, first class of the season. Of course, you're welcome. Take notes. Uh, the, the new title of the class is Spiritual Psychotherapy. I changed it from last year. Originally, the name of the class last year was Rationalism versus Mysticism. I very quickly realized, um, hey, Baruch Haba. Um, I'm less interested uh, in pursuing, you know, rational uh, things, which doesn't mean I'm trying to be irrational, but it means that I spent so many years earlier in my life uh, interested in very Maimonidean, strictly rational things. And now I feel like it's time for me to expand more into the mystical realm and, and what it has to teach me. And uh, it, I just have found it so intriguing. Um, so I, I named the class spiritual psychotherapy because I've found that what mysticism does for me is it helps unlock certain complexes. And I think these are complexes that are that all human beings have in a way. We all have certain ways of seeing the world that don't allow us to really see the world objectively and in a way that fully connects us to God or to the universe or what have you. So the amazing thing is uh, that this type of teaching, welcome to Erwin, Baruch uh, ID on Zoom. Um, Hi, Greg, how you doing? It's so good to have you. Uh, welcome back. I, I, I almost couldn't get it because my Zoom didn't work and I didn't have the number. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not to interrupt the guy, I called him one, I called the whole world. <laughs> I'm so glad you joined. Last year, and I saw you sent me the number, so... Amazing, amazing. I'm, I'm so happy. Ready, and I'm ready to get Jewish. <laughs> All right, let's do it. We're going to start off with some uh, Eastern stuff, but we'll make our way to the Judaism. Just you wait. We'll, we'll get do there. I have, do I have to bow anything? You have to bow. If you say six Hail Marys and we'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I named the class Spiritual Psychotherapy because I feel like this type of teaching allows us to do what psychotherapy is supposed to do. And of course, I'm biased because I'm becoming a psychiatrist. Hopefully, if they don't kick me out of the program, uh, that's the plan. So for me, I've found that, you know, what really helps me more than even psychology is mysticism. And mysticism is, is great as a form of psychotherapy. And in certain ways, I'm going to try to show you how that's going to be the case. Another name that I, that I debated calling this class is spiritual ophthalmology. Because you don't go to an ophthalmologist to repent for your sins. You don't go to an ophthalmologist to try to be a better person. You go to an ophthalmologist to fix the way that you see the world. So I find that mysticism, Jewish mysticism, yes, is very much focused on morality. But more than that, it's also focused on seeing the world. And of course, Eastern philosophy and mysticism in that way is very much focused on seeing with more clarity and seeing the world not out of a moral sense not, and not to be immoral, but in the sense that we want to be able to see the world as it is and to kind of clear, clear our minds of certain illusions about and ego projections about the, the way the world is really not. So what is it exactly that, that led me towards appreciating, you know, Eastern philosophy? Some people... Uh, have, you know, really questioned me. They said, why can't you just find everything in Judaism? So I'll, I'll state it like this. You know, I, I love the Torah and the Torah is my religion. And, and I have no stronger way of saying that. I don't think this Eastern philosophy is a religion. That's why I called the class 
spiritual psychotherapy and spiritual ophthalmology because I think it's the equivalent for me of going to the doctor. It's the equivalent for me of going to the ophthalmologist. So I found earlier on in my life that I, I'm still out of balance, but I found early on in my life, I was even more out of balance. What do I mean by that? I found that I was too goal-oriented and you could probably uh, pinpoint this to certain psychodynamic things in my life and you could pinpoint it to a whole you know, litany of different reasons that I might've been too goal-oriented and not chill enough. You know, I would have loved to, be, to have been more relaxed as a kid, wow, baruch haba. So I, I would have loved to, to have been a, a person that is able to just be. And I found that very difficult. And then once I was exposed to this spiritual ophthalmology, to the Buddhism stuff, to the Eastern philosophy, I found that I was becoming more balanced and more at peace just being. So my goal for this class is not to be an intellectual pursuit. It could be that in some way, but really more than anything to be something that gives you something that gives you inner peace and equanimity. And that's something we're going to talk about. It's something that I, I really want us to all kind of open our hearts and our minds to thank you so much to this experience, to be able to use it in a therapeutic way. And I've found there's nothing more valuable in this world. Yes, yeah, some classes are interesting. And it'll tickle your fancy on certain things. But the most amazing feeling is feeling like you're at peace. And I want to share that with you guys. I want to, I want to know that I'm feeling that way. And I want to see from you guys that, that something resonates. And if it doesn't, I want you to tell me. And of course, comments and questions throughout are my favorite thing. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously balance it with the content. But 100%, I want to hear what you guys have to say. That's the whole point of this. Um, so, you know, something that a lot of people hear in their lives is, you know, a lot of these reductionistic, scientific, rationalistic minded people. And we discussed all these things last year and how the human brain is kind of it, uh, contains different faculties. The left brain is better at logical thinking and deduction, the right brain induction and connecting things and religion. And these are all facets of the human experience. And we find so often that these scientists, these scientists are they believe in scientism they believe in kind of like a dogmatic way of looking at the world because of the science reductionistically and they say really it's all meaningless and they're going to state that for a fact the great irony is what the statement that it's all meaningless is itself meaningless so you didn't even say anything and that leads me to my next statement which is that the deepest truths and this is something we harped upon ad nauseum last year the deepest truths in life are paradoxes even forgive me even the truth of god what is god so you know they have so many people claiming to be atheists so many people claiming to be believers in god for me as a psychiatrist or just as a human being loving the person sitting across from me friend relative whoever it is they could tell me they believe in god they could tell me they don't believe in God. It doesn't matter. No matter what they tell me, I respect them and I love them because they're a human being. And I believe that they're a sin of Elohim. But what I'm trying to say is when somebody says that about themselves, it's really more of a statement about their psychology than a statement of this is how I should judge them or not. At the end of the day, reality is ineffable. 
there we cannot put into words what reality is. There's something incredible. There's this mystery. So because it's a mystery and because I can't say anything about it anyway, why should I judge people who do? I say so much about it and people say what, they, what they're going to say. The, the thing is, let's be nice to each other. Let's love each other no matter what perspective people are trying to take towards it. So, yes, from one perspective, it's all meaningless. It's all just the jazz. It's all just molecules dancing together. And in that sense, you could call that meaningless if you want. But on the other hand, there's a tremendous amount of meaning that you can experience leading you towards some kind of truth. And we're going to try to discuss that, where relative truth could somehow be elevated to absolute truth if it brings you towards some kind of feeling of oneness and some kind of experience that we call the mystical experience. Um, so I, I found with Judaism alone, and this probably has to do more with my psychology, my personal psychology than anything else, but with Judaism alone, I was playing ego and humility games with God. I was approaching every scenario and every situation as something that is really either I'm trying to impress God or I'm trying to uh, show God how great I am. And, and then other times, no, God, you know, I don't know. You're better than me and I know not. And I was never able to just be with God. I was constantly playing this game and I couldn't escape it. And the thing that saved me from that is this spiritual psychotherapy and this spiritual ophthalmology that basically said, there's nothing you have to do. You're already there. And don't even try to be already there because you're already there. And there's, there's nothing to do. And with the nothing to do, you can do a whole bunch and that's fine. But as, as the blessing goes, I hope whatever you're doing, you're doing less and being more. And that's what this stuff taught me to do. And I could bring this science and this almost like medical way of looking at it and the psychotherapy into my Judaism to enhance the way that I do all of the things within Judaism. So when I pray in the Amidah, it's different now. It's less about urging God to do something for me, and it's more about just being with God. Isn't that amazing? And when I'm doing a mitzvah, it's less about, you know, changing things in the world, and it's more about enjoying the mitzvah itself. The same way somebody goes to a concert, not to change anything, but to enjoy the music. In the same way, when you dance, you're not dancing to get to a certain point in the room. You're dancing for the sake of the dance. Um, so there's a famous story about uh, uh, a certain uh, student sitting in front of his guru. And the student says to the guru, you know, uh, he says, I'm going to go meditate. So the student goes to meditate. And uh, all of a sudden, the guru picks up a brick and he starts, you know, rubbing the brick. And the, stu the student looks at the guru. He says, what the heck are you doing? And he says, uh, oh, I'm, I'm rubbing the brick until it becomes polished, until it becomes a mirror. And the, the student says, that's ridiculous. With no amount of polishing, are you going to be able to turn that brick into a mirror? I'm telling you. And the, the guru tells the student, with no amount of zazen, will you be able to attain enlightenment? With no amount of you forcing it, will you be able to attain this state of nirvana that you're looking for? What does that mean? That means that the ego 
cannot lift itself out of itself. It needs to rely on what we talked about last year, which is divine grace. And there's different ways of talking about that. But a huge part of this discipline is about opening yourself up to whatever this mystery is that the Christians call grace, that the Bene Israel call who knows what. And it's you know, Hashem, really, that's what it is. So I'm going to try to use this class and this these Kabbalistic teachings to get that message across. Um, there's another great uh, line that uh, the, the, the student is with the guru and they're walking, beautiful hike, and they see the mountains and they see the clouds. And uh, the, the student tells the guru, he says, uh, the lines of the hills and the clouds are not all these the body of Buddha. And the guru says, yes, but it's a pity to say so. Why did I bring that up? Because so much of, of this idea of mysticism in general teaches us that we're, we're not supposed to even speak about it. As it says in actually the Tao Te Ching, he who says it does not know, he who knows it does not say. What does that mean? That means that there's no point in even putting this into words. So I come to this almost every class. What the heck am I doing here? Why am I even speaking? Well, the truth is, I find it fun. <laughs> I, I think this is a great thing to do on a Tuesday night. What else am I doing? To be honest, this is the best I got. I'm kidding. I, I, love, I love this and I love you guys. This is, this is my jam. This is my favorite thing to do. And the irony is, even though the Dao De Ching says that, he wrote the entire Dao De Ching. So that's the proof in the pudding is that you can say whatever you want, but just know the whole time that what you're saying is not actual reality. And hopefully what I'm saying will be like the finger pointing at the moon, where instead of sucking on the finger, you could look at the finger and notice where it's pointing and, and use it in your daily life to let go and let God, as they say in AA, to be able to experience whatever this means. Um, as they say also, enlightenment is, but no one to achieve it. What does that mean? That means that once you let go of your ego, you have enlightenment. But there's no you to experience it anymore. There's tremendous amounts of paradox. Don't even try to wrap your head around it. You're going to try. It's okay. Accept that. And then let go of it. Because this is not something that the mind can understand because this is not a mind thing. This is an experiential thing. And like we said last year, the different parts of the brain are designed for you to experience the world in this way. So I, I wrote here, be very careful with mysticism. Why? I found this in Kabbalah more than anything. It could become human-centered and egoistic to the degree that you're so focused on yourself that it no longer really becomes about a relationship with God. It becomes more about, look how great I am and how much I'm influencing the divine realms. And it's totally undercutting itself. But that's why I've found the Eastern philosophy stuff to be the perfect supplement. I've found it to be something that allows me personally to feel like you're right. I, I am human-centered and I am egoistic and I am doing all these things and that's okay. And then I can move on from there and I could let go and I could just notice it and I could not take myself too seriously. If there's one thing you gain out of this whole class is don't take yourself too seriously and don't take life too seriously. 
right? That's the most beautiful. ID is laughing because he knows it's true. <laughs> that's no, the I, that, no I, that's my gig. But that's, that's it. But, but Mikey, how does GB drive the ego? How does the GB? I think when you tell somebody, if you shake the lulav in this way. You're causing the sefirot to have some kind of erotic dance that they wouldn't have been able to have unless you shook the lulav in this way. And you're saying, how great am I that God wouldn't be able to have sex with himself unless I was here to shake the lulav. Oh, so that's where... Thank you for being, you know, racy over here, but that's kind of the way that people could take it. So for me, the way, the way that I was able to maintain some degree of sanity throughout studying some of the mystical stuff is with this knowledge the whole time. Whatever's going on, it's not serious. You could take it sincerely. This is not a put down of life. This is not to say life is not important. Like we were giving the analogy before of the concert or listening to a sonata or dancing. Is that, is it serious? Is a dance serious? No, it's sincere. When you're playing an instrument, you're playing at it, just like you could be playing at life. You could be playing at it sincerely, but not seriously. That's something I've said many, many times. Um, so I think Eastern philosophy is the perfect supplement to anybody trying to engage in this mystical stuff, because if you're able to supplement it with that, then you're able to say, wow, what a beautiful relative truth. I'm able to do now when I shake the lulav, I really do experience something going on. Is it absolute truth? And no, not at this moment. And therefore, I don't have to have this crazy ego boost. And I could just be in this experience of, wow, you know, there's something unbelievable going on while I do this. And even just to use that picturing whatever is happening up there as a tool allows me to feel amazing. And that's what it's about, that human experience which could bring you to an absolute truth, which could elevate the relative truth to an absolute truth. I know I'm speaking very abstractly, but hopefully it'll become clear when we get into the nitty gritty of the things. Um, so I wrote here, desiring not to desire. Uh, so what does that mean? You know, it's, it has a lot to do with the idea that we were saying earlier, we, we try to use the ego sometimes to overcome the ego. The whole point of the Eastern stuff is to try to tell you, wait, okay, so what's the first truth? The first truth is life is suffering. The second truth is uh, suffering comes from desire. So you say, oh, okay, got it. I got the solution. Guys, I figured it out. If we don't desire, we won't suffer. Hazaku baruch. Okay, got it. No more desiring. We say, and then, so the, the guru will tell the student that. He sends him off for like a week. He says, all right, you got it. Figure it out now. The student comes back all disheveled. He's sad. He says, Guru, I, I don't know how to tell you this. I'm desiring not to desire. <laughs> so so you, the whole point of Buddhism is to place the student in an impossible position until his ego totally gives up control. It's to literally beat the heck out of you in a way, not too badly, but in a way that shows you there is no point in trying to improve yourself. The point is you need to let go and just be with what is, and it'll happen of itself. Um, and as they say, you know, you, you, once you discover this truth, you say, okay, now I'll, I'm going to be good now. And now I'm going to, I'm going to do what I'm doing for the sake of goodness. 
They say previously you were bound to the wheel of samsara with chains of iron. Now you're bound to the wheel of samsara with chains of gold. What does that mean? You used to be bound to life and to the storyline and this rat race that you were telling yourself. You used to be bound to that through your sins, through your desires, through those base things that you used to do. But now you're bound to it through your righteousness. Now you're, you used to brag to your friends about all of your misdeeds and all the women you slept with and all these crazy things that you did. But now you're bragging to your friends about what a sadiq you are and how many mitzvot you did and how many hours you spent sitting in the lotus position. Exactly. No matter what you do, you're feeding your ego. And the point of this is to get you to give that up. It's setting you up for a trap, but it's for a good intention. It's trapping you to tell you, stop playing this game. Um, and every one of us, I think, is on our own personal journey until it leads us to this place where we're able to let go. And you got to take it at your own pace, because if you try to force it and you try to go too far too fast, it's not going to work. It's going to be more of the same. So I think that's the beauty is it's up to you to discover this beautiful adventure that you're on. It's not a bad thing. And as we said, there's nowhere to get to. You right now are perfect. There's nothing to do. But the problem is you're going to be trying not to do something sometimes. So don't try. Ah, there's the problem. So this, that's where maybe the work comes in. So it's a paradox. On the one hand, there's nothing to do. On the other hand, how do you not do anything? How do you not do anything? Well, I know it sounds a little bit out there, but hopefully it'll become clearer as we continue to talk about this. Um, even trying to accept oneself is a way of not accepting oneself. This is a very strange thing. We use psychotherapy to avoid bad feelings. So just, the you know, they say uh, someone who goes to a psychotherapist ought to have his head examined. There's a double entendre to that, right? You know, on the one hand, how's it? The guy came to the head examination, examined his head. But on the other hand, the very fact that you think something is wrong with you is the problem. So don't try to accept yourself. So I, you know, I say sometimes to people, accept your own judgmentalism. Accept that you cannot accept certain things. I right now cannot accept death. If you brought a knife to my throat and you tried to say, I will not be able to accept it. I know there are people who have gone to the level where they could accept it. And there's these famous stories, you know, the... The general comes in uh, and he says, to, uh, you know, all the gurus and all the monks out of the monasteries and one guy stays and the, the general says, uh, he's fuming angry. There's one guy who stayed, he went up to him in the monastery. He says, do you know who I am? He says, I can slit your throat and not even bat an eye. And then the, the monk looks up at him. He says, um, do you know who I am? I can let you slit my throat and not even bat an eye. Don't take that too literally. It's not very Jewish. Yeah, I'm not going to die. I'm going to live. I understand that. But at the same time, there's a certain quality of an enlightened person where he takes things so not seriously that he doesn't cling to Okay, you kill me. You don't kill me. It is what it is. And that's fine. It's all just part of the dance. And, you know, we, we right now, though, Part of my own inner work is accepting. I can, if you come to try to kill me right now, I will not accept that. And I accept that I don't accept that. And you can keep going with this. Just accept the next thing and accept the next thing as far as, it, as you need to take it. 
um, you start realizing through this work, you have only selfish reasons. You know that episode of Friends, Stephen pointed it out to me once, where Phoebe tries to do a, a totally selfless good deed. She ends up letting a bee sting her or something. And, you know, she realizes even that gave her some degree of, of uh, pleasure to know that she let the bee sting her. It's like it gets to a ridiculous point when you try to be so selfless. So as they say, the goody goods are the thieves of virtue. Having to know that you're doing good is taking away from the goodness of it. Real virtue doesn't even know that it's virtue. It's just doing. And that's what they say about the Tao, by the way. They say the Tao flows both to the left and to the right. It loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. It's not taking credit. It just is. It's just flowing. And if we could get into the groove of that, of just flowing and not taking credit for good, look, God, you know, when you're meditating and you realize, whoa, I was just present for five seconds there. You know, it happens to me sometimes. That's the equivalent of, hey, look, Ma, I did it. There's a little bit of pain there. There's a little bit of trying to prove yourself, you know, and it's okay. Accept that and move on. And you say, you know what? It's impossible for me to do the right thing, for me, my ego, to do the right thing, because I'm always trying to do the right thing for the wrong reasons, because I'm always trying to do the right thing to be one up on the universe and show God how great I am and be finally worthy of God's love. And the whole irony is you are worthy right now. You've been worthy the whole time and there is nothing for you to have to do to earn it. And this is very dangerous. Do you tell this to some people? They might, they might do some crazy things. That's not the point. here. I'm, I, I trust all of you guys and please God, whoever's listening on Spotify, you know, to be able to, uh, you know, understand the point of this is not to go out and do crazy things, but it's whatever you were, you're doing, do it with a presence and a love of self and an understanding you're part of this, this grand dance of the universe. Um, so as they say, when the wrong man uses the right means, the right means work in the wrong way. Right. So they have the, the famous story, uh, uh, a guru uh, with the student, as always, the, the guru looks at the student. And he says, I bet you, you can't tell me the fundamental principle of Buddhism. And he tells him, yeah, actually, yeah, Ping Ting comes for fire. Ping Ting is the god of fire, for, as a side note. And the guru says, oh, wow, that's amazing. He says, uh, so, so explain to me, what does it mean? He says, okay, Ping Ting, comes, the god of fire is coming for fire. There's an absurdity to that, right? It's the equivalent of me who is already enlightened on some level, coming for enlightenment, there's nothing to look for. I'm already there. Whatever the journey is to right here. If you're already in Detroit, you don't need to take a train to Detroit. So I'm already where I'm at and there's nothing to look for. And the guru looks at the student, he says, aha, I knew you didn't get it. And the student says, what do you mean? He says, the guru says, okay, now you ask me. And he says, okay, what, uh, the student asks the guru, what's the fundamental principle of Buddhism? He looks at me, he says, pink ting comes for fire. And that's it. That's a Zen koan. A Zen koan is like a riddle that's not meant to be solved intellectually, but it's supposed to shock you in the moment, almost like a joke to induce a laugh. The same way a koan is supposed to shock you into the moment and, and kind of not be an intellectual thing. But... If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It, it should not be explained. And that's kind of the point of the koan itself here, 
which is the fact that you felt the need to explain why pink thing comes from fire is absurd means you didn't get it because you were thinking about it. And if you really, you know what it is right now, each of us in, in a way is God, if, forgive me for saying this, putting on an act. Each one of us is God playing a game, me included. And we're so deathly afraid of fully accepting that we're one with this totality of our ego giving itself up that we want to play this game. I want to come here and talk to you guys for an hour about this stuff rather than give up my ego. It's because it's easier and it's more fun. And, and that's fine. That's also part of the game. But the point is you can, you can keep doing this until you, the real you decides oh, I had enough. I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to be Nirvana. I just want to be one with everything. Uh, so, so there's, there's really a, a beauty to realizing this because you, you're not too hard on yourself anymore. There's, there's nothing to, to really do, uh, that's, that's so urgent. It's just about being with what is, um, and, and we'll move into the Kabbalah stuff in a minute. Uh, yes, please. Why is, uh, the Eastern philosophy so different from Greek to, you know, there's no similarity it's it's so interesting right i i think absolutely uh, that's such a great point the greek philosophy yeah the greek philosophy is very left brain it's very analytical it's very much trying to separate the world into different objects eastern philosophy i've found is much more right brain it's much more seeing things as connected and that's the difference. The difference is, I think that's, in, you know, that's really what I think it is, where the, the, the need to separate and put boundaries is kind of like uh, the, the cause of so much of the reason why we're seeking out Eastern philosophy is because I don't want to feel like little old me anymore. I want to feel connected to everything. We know mental illness comes from feeling like an isolated ego. But the cure for that is realizing that isolated ego is an illusion. And you have no choice but to be connected with everything else. And you have been and you always are and always will be. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, the way to get this is through divine grace. It's through letting go and seeing what happens and trusting. It's a leap of faith. It's amazing to me. I spent so much of my life running away from this idea of a leap of faith and trying to prove God rationally in the whole Maimonidean route. And I love Anambam, don't get me wrong. But right now, that's not where I'm at. Where I'm at is I'm, I'm going right back to square one. It's a really ironic thing. Um, I wrote here, to him that hath shall be given. You know, it's almost like uh, the, already and to him that does not have shall be taken away. It's like, come on, God, what are you doing to me? I'm already in distress. I already, already feel lacking. And you're taking away from me even more. Like you're not even allowing me the solace to feel like I have any control over my destiny. And the answer is, yeah. It could be very scary sometimes. It could be very difficult sometimes. You take a deep breath, though. You come back to the moment and you realize you've already been there. And there's nothing to do. And I'll skip ahead for a second. The Kabbalists have such a beautiful thing with this. They say... When you're in this state of mind, of mystical union, and you're praying, it's as though God is using your lips to pray to himself. And when you're doing a mitzvah, it's like Hashem is using your hands to do mitzvah. 
and there is no ego there. There is nobody there. And there has never, in reality right now, there are no egos. It's just God. And it's all just a game that God is playing. And it's a game of hide and seek. And we think there's egos, but really everything is just God playing a game with himself. Um, so there, there's a famous story also uh, that there was somebody uh, trying to find, you know, some American in England trying to find uh, how to get to a certain place. And uh, he finds one of these, like, uh, I think it's called like a Yoki or something like that. Uh, uh, and he, he goes up to him and he says, do you know the way to X, Y, and Z place? He says, well, sir, I do know where it is, but uh, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. And the point of that is, you know, that trying to get to enlightenment shouldn't begin with the ego. It should begin with everything we're saying, which is it's already here. And that's the point. You can't go to a place where you already are. You have to realize you're already there. Um, it's amazing, right? Uh, it's an incredible thing. And, and, you know, just telling me this decreases my anxiety already. Um, exactly. It's very much just that word, acceptance, 100%. It's um, funny, Mike, in, yeah, one I, the, in one of the motivational books I read, if, if one of the chapters has a stop sign, right? Yeah. And it says, it doesn't say it's a stop sign, you know, it looks like a, it says, you are here. In other words. I love it. <laughs> like what you just said, don't think you're there, don't think you're gone. We're here. So yep. from that base. But what I'm trying to understand, all these analogies and, and, and comments, are they, are they, are you comparing them? Are you comparing them to something else? What? So I'm going to be comparing them to Kabbalah, you know, throughout the rest of this class for the right. next 20 minutes, hopefully. Um, but yes, that I'm trying to show you that before we get into the Kabbalah, I want to give you guys this, uh, and I'm so glad you asked this. I want to give you this preamble because otherwise Kabbalah is going to do nothing for you. And it's just going to lead you back on that same rat race that you've been on your whole life, right. trying to improve yourself and trying to impress God and trying to get the carrot that's, you know, constantly hanging from the donkey's head. You're never going to get it if you do it the wrong way. Right. And that's what I'm trying to say. Like this stuff acts almost to permeate everything else in my life as a social science almost to allow me to do whatever I'm doing in a beautiful way. So now when I pray and I remember the mystical Kabbalistic teachings about prayer, I'm able to do it in a way where it's so beautiful and perfect, where I'm not trying to impress God anymore. And I'm not trying to show God how humble I am. I'm just trying to be with God in a relationship. And that's... Michael, is your challenge with the Rambam that he's not a Kabbalistic fan? So yeah, I don't even I don't even have a, a, an issue with Hanan Bam himself because we need a rationalist. You know, the, it's part of like any kind of a band. You need the guy playing bass if you want to have the guy playing the drums. If you want to have the guy playing the guitar. You need all of them. But what I was saying is, if I only had Hanan Bam, I might go out of my mind because I would be way too brainiac. I might be autistic. Not that Hanan Bam Hasvish Shalom was, but I might become so you know, thought involved and so cerebral that it might be hard. And that's not true totally of Harambam because he does say beautiful things about relationship and loving God the same way a person loves a woman. And it's like, it's such an amazing thing, but he is very rationalistic. 
Um, so, so uh, yeah, that's, and, and you were talking about um, the idea of self-help books before. One of, one of the things you reminded me of was there's a book called Don't, Don't Just Do Something, Sit There. You know, it's the opposite of don't just sit there, do something. And that's the point is that this stuff is trying to teach you that within what you're doing, just be, you know, and don't try to be, just be, <laughs> but then that's the work, right? Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll start, I'll stop with this before we go to the, the Kabbalistic stuff. Um, there's a great quote here from R.H. Blythe. He says, uh, somebody asks somebody else, do you believe in God? If you do, I don't. If I don't, you do. The point of that being a lot of things within this Eastern philosophy are trying to show the opposite. And so when somebody would ask a very complicated philosophical question, what is the fundamental principle of Buddhism? I washed my bowl this morning. Or the opposite. Um, can you pass me the knife? And the guru will pass the knife to the student blade first. And uh, the, the student says, no, actually, I, I need you to hand it to me with the other, the other end, you know, facing me. And the, the guru says, what would you do with that end? You can't cut anything with the, with the handle of a knife. So the point is you answer the very philosophical things with practical things. You answer the very practical things with philosophical things. And that's kind of the game that's being played in order to shock you into this moment and into that enlightened state. Um, so if you, if you don't believe in God, I do. And if, if you don't, and if you do believe in God, I don't, what does that mean? It's kind of like what we were saying earlier, where you need to recognize the paradox within everything. There's a tremendous paradox. How could there be an infinite being that exists or that is existing, and also leave room for little old me, which is finite? How could there be infinity and also little old me? doesn't make any sense. Well, I think that's the point, is that you're not supposed to use your brain. You're not supposed to use the logical part of your brain. And the whole point of paradox is it's trying to trap you. It's trying to say, stop doing that. Stop thinking about life and just be with life. It's almost like God put this little Easter egg in our thinking. He's like, listen, you're going to get to a wall. When you get to the wall, I want you to stop. I don't want you to keep ramming your head into the wall. So when you get to the paradox, it's a message to you. Appreciate it. Love it. An electron is both a particle and a wave. And now just be. Stop trying to analyze everything. And that's, that's really uh, something that I think is, is so beautiful. And I'll, I'll end this part of the class with something kind of beautiful that I realized today as I, I mean, I'm on my addiction rotation. And it's so amazing. And I'm able to see these different patients. And I'm, and I'm trying to, to really... Uh, work on this class, even in between patient interactions, very interesting, you know, context and framework where I'm working. Um, and I, I wrote this down in the middle of the day, seeing all the people you meet as faces of the divine. So every patient that I see with this mystical head on, and as I'm doing these kind of readings, it's so beautiful. I see them as a, a almost like a, a face of the divine. And they're learning something from me and I'm learning something from them. And I think that's true for all of us as well, is we're part of this divine symphony that's going on. And I remembered something from uh, the Torah where it said that Moshe Rabbeinu would get a teaching and then he would go and write it down and he would think about it and Hashem would give him a break. 
So I realized my interactions with these patients are beautiful. And then I have the time to write the notes and reflect on what's going on. So Moshe is receiving the Torah parasha by parasha. It's almost like I feel the same way with, with my patients, where it's almost like receiving the Torah when you're interacting with somebody with this head. It's like a, a divine interaction. And then once you have that divine interaction, you take the break and you reflect. So we're going we're gonna to pause there for, for this part of the class, from the Eastern stuff. And now we're going to make our way to some of the Kabbalistic stuff at the time that we have left. So first of all, any quick comments or questions? Or is it all uh, understood so far? Or not understood? Even better. <laughs> there you go. Right answer. Yeah. When you pray, you feel like you're with Hashem. But does Hashem want to be with you? That's that's the question for you to answer. Like, how do you know that Hashem wants to be with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you say you're not, not requesting anything, but really that I mean that is all full of requests. No, it's not. No, I do, I think it definitely is full of requests, but Shema Koleno and and Sedakah Mushpat, you know. That's true too. We are sure. stating, we are saying this is who Hashem is. It's a statement, uh, but it's uh, it's a. Uh, it's, 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 you're making a statement because you want him to do these things. But but we're almost attributing these actions to him, so we're saying let's say we're not saying please Rofe We are naming him the Rofe. Yeah, so we expect him to do for us too. That's Can I tell you what, what I think? I think you're both right. I think that's exactly the point, is what we were saying before. You could be asking, you could be changing the world, and you could be going and doing mitzvot and helping treat people, but all the while just be proclaiming who God is and being. Whatever you're doing, just be. And I think that's the point. And the question of, does God want to be with me? God doesn't have any desires per se, but we could have an insight into our own personal psychology. If I approach God and I feel God is rejecting me, maybe it's because I did something you know, earlier that day that I didn't feel good about. And I need to work through that. And God has just been there all the way, you know, waiting for me just to, to come back to him. And that's a beautiful thing. But we're, we all go on that personal journey. But that's it's a great point. Great question. Um, so I'll read something from uh, one of the articles that my rabbi in Israel posted. Uh, he, he has a beautiful website called the four questions of Judaism, four questions of Judaism.com. I believe it's called um, his name is Rav Gedalia Meyer. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And I learned with him in Israel for the whole year. And I've been visiting him. Amazing, amazing, amazing person. So he writes as follows towards the beginning of the Zohar. A fascinating discussion is found between Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his associates. So we know Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is kind of like this you know, super heroic figure of uh, Kabbalah. Was, oh, sorry, what was that? Oh, that's very funny. <laughs> Don't tell the rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> After discussing the verse stating, let us make man in our image and as our likeness, they ask the question, right? So the, the Torah says, let's make man. Why, why should God have created man if it was known that man was going to fall, right? Man was, was known, Hashem knows the future. Okay, man is going to sin. Maybe Shimon's reply is that man could always repent. 
to this, the other's ask, why create man with the capacity to do evil in the first place? I think this is something we all struggle with. Why create the world with evil in it? Rabbi Shimon answers that it was necessary that man have a good and an evil inclination and free will to choose between them in order to be able to do or to violate the mitzvot, basically what you're saying. In order to have the free will to do good, you need to also have the potential for evil. Positive 10 could not exist if negative 10 didn't exist. That's just a fact. You can't have a four-sided triangle. And people try to say, well, logic, that can God make a, a rock that he can't lift? You get into all these questions. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, this is one insight I've had in my life. Life is suffering, we like to say. That's the, the first noble truth. What does that mean? That means that in order for life to be an ingredient, for life is death. An ingredient for the building up and the growth is the decay and the death. It cannot be one without the other. So life is suffering. It's just a fact. And once you accept that, you're going to stop resisting all the little and big sufferings that we go through. And that's, that's part of the, the growth here. And it's not easy. Of course, it's not easy. And I can't put into words and nobody can why this happens. But part of what this is trying to help us do is to experience the music of reality. To understand through that means. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it teaches you a lot, you know, and there's like a lot of these people uh, like to say that they, you know, they like to maybe have a quote here. Um, there was a faith healer of deal who said, although pain is not real, when the point of a pin goes into my skin, I dislike what I fancy I feel, which means that, Although I could philosophize about pain, I could say, oh, it's okay, da 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 I still, when you put a pin into my skin, I will still shriek. It's just a fact. So it's exactly like you're saying is, is we, you know, going through the pain will teach us something. We could talk about it, but at the end of the day, it is still an experience to have and to be with. And that's okay. It's okay to be in pain. It's okay to hate God. You know, forgive me for saying that for that moment. Or for, but it's important to be able to let that go too. Um, so let's see. The, uh, they come back with essentially the same question. Why was it necessary to have the evil side at all? The Bishamon's final answer is that it was necessary to fulfill what the Torah describes about rewards for good and punishment for evil. So it's this, this quandary and you could philosophize about it and you could say, well, you can't have one without the other, but that's just a fact. It's just the truth. Um, and he finishes his answer with the cryptic statement. Additionally, uh, the created Torah is the garment of God's presence, right? And that's such a beautiful idea that the, the Torah is like a garment of God. What does that mean? If human beings weren't created, God's presence would not be clothed. So here's where I was very skeptical. I was very afraid to even say this unless I gave you a whole preamble. Because what, are you, what can I now say? Ah, oh, God needs me. How great am I? You see, you see how unbalanced that could become. But now that we had this whole preamble, you can understand. Oh, I, I think I understand what it's saying. Is once I remove my ego or once my ego is removed of itself, I open myself to this experience of, God, Kibiachol, needs me as a player 
to do this. He needs my ego to dissolve itself if, if he is going to be in this world. Consequently, whoever sins, it is as if that person has stripped God's presence of garments, and this is that person's punishment. But whoever fulfills them, it's vaught, it is as if that person has clothed God's presence. So either you're bringing glory to God or you're removing it from God. Although on one level, it's possible that no matter what happens, there's just glory to God. Because whatever suffering there is and whatever evil there is, at the end of the day, you will die and you will merge back with God, whatever that means. And you will hopefully have this experience that you'll realize no matter what it was, all that suffering was really grace because it led me back to the point where I was able to become one with God again. And there was some journey and some adventure that happened that I don't know how to explain it. But at the end of the day, I merged back with God and I became enlightened and either in this world or not. And it all just happened that way. Um, our core from the Zod gives two answers to the question of why human beings were created with a built-in evil side. The first focuses on the Torah. It seems to say that God needed a flesh and blood example to demonstrate the Torah's system of reward and punishment. Right? So we needed to have this whole system in order to explain Sachar Vanish, but what else? The theoretical concept wasn't enough. This line of thought illustrates a fascinating idea that is found in several places in the Zohar that God looked into the Torah and created the world. That God looked into the Torah and created the world. What the heck does that mean? With the Torah as a blueprint for the world. The way I understand that is that it's an expression of the Torah is so in touch with human nature. It's so in touch with, you know, you read the story of Adam and Hava, and you can't believe this is ancient. It's so relevant to human psychology, to each and every one of us, to our daily experiences of like, what does this mean to be in a world where we're separate from everything and we feel like we have these temptations and we have to resist them and we, all these different motifs. And you say, what a brilliant thing. And the Torah is full of this. But, and that's what I think it means. It's almost as though God used the Torah as a blueprint or a framework for the whole world because that's how in touch the Torah is with the nature of reality. Um, looked at in this sense, everything in our universe, from the stars to our own moral conscience, exists because it is the hard copy of something in the Torah Difficult as this idea may be to fathom and to accept actually, it cuts into the Kabbalistic conception of reality. What we see and experience in this world is only an outer manifestation of a deeper reality that exists in God's mind. I love the way my rabbi writes because in a way, you know, in a way, what he says is we're all a dream in the mind of God. Everything that's unfolding and everything that we're experiencing you know, Harambam says, God is the knowledge. Mickey heard this a million times from me. God is the knowledge. God is the knower. And God is that which is known. My rabbi kind of makes like a shot from this. And he says, God is the dream. God is the dreamer. And God is that which is being dreamt. So imagine this is all a lucid dream. We know from science, from neuroscience, the brain is constantly hallucinating this reality. There is no absolute thing here, but, but it's the interaction of my consciousness with this that perceives 
the table is hard or the cup is flimsy. And you start to realize, imagine you could go into your dream. I've had lucid dreams myself. If you want to take some Hooper's DNA, you could have even more lucid dreams, but that's a story for another time. Um, it's, if you imagine you could go into your dream, go to one of the characters in the dream and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, look, buddy, I just want you to know you're really just a figment of my imagination. You're just a, uh, a dream figure. And I actually read a, a book on, uh, on lucid dreaming where the guy actually does this. And what do you think happens? He goes up to a woman in his dream and the woman says, who the heck do you think you are? That's disgusting. How dare you tell me this? And, and it's obviously a part of his ego that he's talking to, but that's so interesting. And it's almost like a nested layer of reality that we're hitting upon. So I'll, I'll tell you very briefly another thing because it connects here. Um, and this is from Chuang Tzu. Once upon a time, I, Chuang Tzu, uh, Chuang Chao, dreamed that I was a butterfly, a butterfly flying about, enjoying itself. I did not know that, I, that it was Chuang Tzu, Chao. Suddenly I awoke and ver veritably I was Chuang Chao again. But I do not know whether it was I dreaming that I was a butterfly or whether I am a butterfly dreaming that I am Chuang Chao. I love this because it shows you the relativity of all reality. Just knowing that we have times when we dream tells us this is a relative reality and the dream world is relative reality. So you already know it's a relative reality. This is really trippy. It's, it's an amazing thing. Have you ever had a false awakening in a dream? I've had this so many times and there's nothing more freaky than this. I've had a dream where I, I don't even know what happened. Some crazy things. And then I wake up and I go into my kitchen and I tell my family about my dream. Word for word almost. And I, I tell them exactly what happened. And then I wake up from that dream into this world. And I say, what is going on? <laughs> there is nothing that will knock you off your ego more than that, I think. Because it shows you. Whatever is going on here is just one plane. And there's nested layers of reality. And you talk about like a lot of people who do psychedelics, they have like this view of like, let's say you see a square. And then within that square, you see a smaller square. And within that one, you see another one. And then, and then or like, you, you know, the Simpsons where there's like uh, a cutaway into Homer's eye. And then you see the whole universe. And then it comes back out and it's Homer's eye. I think they don't even show that it's Homer's eye until the very end. But it's like every universe that we know of this entire universe could be inside of some guy's fingernail and that one could be inside of this one and it's like we have no idea you know the famous story of like what is the world standing upon the ancient greek philosopher said it's on a turtle and he says well, what's that one on this is another turtle and he says what about that one he says it's turtles all the way down you know, the whole joke of that is we don't know what's going on here. We don't know what's nested within what and what's where. But at the end of the day, we are here and we're living out this funny dream and this journey. And we're, we might as well play at it. We might as well not take it too seriously. And don't do bad. Things. I'm not trying to tell you that. But when you do, forgive yourself and move on and let it go. 
and just be present and love the people around you. And I think that's, I always walk out of this kind of a thing, appreciating the people around me even more and loving them even more and enjoying the things that I enjoy even more and listening to music. And that allows me to do these things in a way where, where I don't even, you know, take myself seriously. And that's the best feeling. Um, we, we only have a couple more minutes, but I guess until the rabbi uh, stops us, you know, but anyone, yeah, if you need to go for free, 100%, 100%, I want to hear that. You know what? Let's, let's open it up to questions. I think that's a good idea. I'm so, I'm so happy. Yeah. Very enlightening. I have nothing but great things to say in the eye I'm so happy. Wow. Very Victor Frankel esque. Uh, wow. Yes to life. Amen. You're saying a lot about that book. Mm. And I just read it. So it's very yes. Yes. But what's the danger of just when, when you say so much, um, just be, just let it be, you're part of mm. this. It's, mm. it's, you know, it's a dream. I get that part, uh, especially for the overachievers in us. But yeah. what about using our time here mm. to do good? To make this world a better place. Yes, life is suffering, yeah. but there's meaning in that suffering, mm -hmm. especially if you do something, especially if you retain your kindness, your humanity. Absolutely. So where is all of that in the mm. picture of, you know, you could go to a meditation which you can sit there for 10 hours, but not speaking for 10 days, yeah. right? But where is the using your time to make the world a better place? Where's the tikkun olam in that? Absolutely. So that, that's exactly where I think the, the paradox idea comes in, which is on the one hand, this world, and that's you get into the Kabbalah. I wish we had more time because I would have been into the Kabbalah and the shattering of the vessels and almost like the fall of man. I know it's a very Christian concept, but it's kind of in Kabbalah where the, all the vessels shattered when God created the world and all the sparks are all over the place. We got to collect them. We got to fix the world and all this terrible suffering and genocide and hunger and all this terrible stuff. And we can't allow that. And we, how dare we sit for 10 days and do nothing while people are starving in Africa? Who do you think we are? But at the same time, you know, Ram Das, one of these guys that I love, uh, he was sitting with his guru and he was telling his guru how terrible the, you know, there was a certain famine in Bangladesh, let's say, in his time. He said he was complaining how all these little children are starving. How terrible is that? And the guru said, Ramdas, can't you just take a second to see it's all perfect? And Ramdas says, when my guru said that, it was almost like he spat the words out. I couldn't even hear them. But he says, now I understand that it didn't mean don't go do anything for these people. It doesn't mean don't do tikkun olam, which we're going to talk so much about. But it does mean that often, when you don't have all this that we said in mind, you very often will do more harm than good in what you're doing. Because the road is paved with good intentions. How many wars were fought over, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to do good, and I'm going to burn your body to save your soul, and there's so many things like that. So every one of us has this challenge, in a way, to find the balance. The balance between doing and not doing. The balance between sitting and meditating and going to the hospital and, and healing somebody and, and doing your best. Perfect. Yeah. I didn't hear the beginning, yeah. but I have a comment. Of that course. Yeah, yeah sure. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Sounds like we're done. All right. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so happy you came really come every week. Such a pleasure. I'm so happy.
All right, guys. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, guys, please come. I love you guys. You know, hopefully we'll uh, we'll have more time for more questions next time. Hazaka Baruch, everybody. Really great. Thank you so much for coming, my friend. I love you. Yeah. That's right, baby. That's right. And if you don't accept, accept that. Accept that, too. There's plenty of things I don't accept, you know? Exactly. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Allah as always. Love you. There is no word that's applicable.